Great. Today, we are excited to have on our show, George Affleck, BC Liberal candidate and for, for MLA in the Vancouver Fairview riding. This is George, George's first campaign for provincial office, but by no means his first campaign. George served as a Vancouver City Councilor for seven years and was elected to that position twice. Before serving on City Council, George was a marketing executive and founder of Vancouver's Curve Communications. Today, I'm excited to talk to George about what's at stake in this election, his transition from business to politics, and how he's uniquely prepared to campaign in this environment. So, George, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. So let's, we're going to, just for the listeners to know, what we're going to do is we're going to cover off the election, mm -hmm. uh, particularly your riding of Vancouver Fairview, um, where we have two Georges running. The Battle of the Georges. <laughs> we also have, uh, we're going to talk about the economy and taxation, some social issues like homelessness and schools. So let's start off by jumping right into this. What's, what's at stake in this election? What is at stake in this election? Well, this uh, unneeded election called by the NDP uh, has a chance of creating a majority government in the middle of, of a pandemic, which gives them carte blanche or any other party carte blanche to do what they want to do. Uh, I think it's opportunistic and uh, unfortunate the NDP have done this. But uh, here we are in this election. So, um, you know, I think it's a battle to the majority right now and, and we'll see what happens. So why do you think it's important that the BC Liberals gain a majority government for the next four years? And conversely, why is it important that the BC NDP not have the same <laughs> so uh, many, opportunity? So many reasons. <laughs> um, I think the main thing right now, um, as we make our way through this uh, nightmare of a pandemic that we have, that we're living through, and we see some light at the end of that tunnel, uh, whether it's through you know the healthcare you know, uh, process of how we're dealing with this, wearing masks, or we find a cure. Uh, you have to ask yourself who's best um, able to manage the economy, which is going to be the biggest challenge and is the current biggest challenge. The track record of the NDP is dismal in, the, in, the, in that area in, in managing money. Uh, I would be very, very concerned if they are in charge and taking care of uh, the taxes that I pay and you pay and everybody pays, no matter what those taxes, because I don't think they have the abilities or the skill set or the depth or the understanding of how an economy works uh, and how you reignite the economy, how you get it going again. I don't really think the NDP understand that. It's not in their DNA. And frankly, I don't think they really care. Um, and so uh, I think as we move uh, out of the pandemic over the next year, year and a half, I think we have to have a, a political party uh, and a government who's in there that understands how to get the economy going again and get people back to work. Okay, that's good. You know, it's interesting that your comments, uh, you haven't even heard this podcast yet, but we just had Sam Sullivan here on Friday, who's yeah. your neighbor just that's right. just uh, north of you. Yeah. Um, and just to be clear, so you're in Vancouver Fairview, which is confusing because there's also a Vancouver Fraser View. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, but your Fairview, you want to quickly describe for people the, the jurisdiction that you're, you're kind of yeah. the riding you're in? It's kind of an interesting riding. It's quite large um, because, and it's it actually almost acts like a mini Vancouver in a lot of ways. When you look at it, um, it goes from Main Street all the way over to Arbutus, um, and then it goes up to 33rd, and then kind of cuts down to 16th, and down to 4th. So Sam's riding starts at 4th to the water, and mine's sort of from 4th Avenue, 6th Avenue, 2nd. It kind of changes all the way up to, to 33rd in that area. So you go from the east side of uh, Vancouver, of Main Street and, and Mount Pleasant, all the way into Shaughnessy, and then now to Kitts, and then... Uh, in part of Fairview, when you look at the map and you look at the voting uh, trends in, in on the map, it's actually quite similar to when you layer a map of the city of Vancouver. You have 
you know, BC Liberals voting on the west side and the south side, and then a pocket in the uh, sort of the Fairview area. And the same in the city, you have west side, south side of Vancouver overall, and then the downtown. It's sort of interesting when you look at it as a map that it actually is very, very similar. And so therefore, it's very similar approach to campaigning and, and how you, you know, it's got a combination of condos and rental and houses. It's got everything. And so mm -hmm. you really have to uh, work your magic on how you campaign because it's quite complicated. Yeah. And I'm sure it's even more complicated given the situation of COVID these days. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite daunting sometimes with the whole knocking on doors thing, which is a big part of a campaign. Um, you know, you have to wear the mask. You have to go, there's a whole process that yeah. Dr. Molly Henry's put forward. Uh, one of the stranger things that you have to do, and especially if you're knocking on doors on houses, you have to knock on the go upstairs with the mask, knock on the door, then you have to go all the way back down the stairs, and then you have to yell this person from down the bottom <laughs> of the stairs. So you're, you're in fact getting all this extra exercise up and down and around. Or, you know, it's it's so if nothing else, uh, getting fit. You'll, you'll get fit getting from this fit. campaign. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> okay. Well, going back to this conversation with Sam that we had on Friday that we'll publish uh, later today or tomorrow, he made a comment, and I'll, I'll quote him. He said, you know, it's interesting that the NDP... Um, aren't even curious about the economy and how the economy works. So it kind of reflects the comment you're stating. Um, of course, the outgoing Minister of Finance, Carol James, I wouldn't say is her strength had ever been in finance. I mean, she's a former kindergarten teacher and lifelong right. NDP uh, politician. Um, so let's talk a minute about George Heyman, who's sure. your, your competition mm -hmm. in this. He's the incumbent MLA, and he was the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Uh, before this election was called. Yeah. Um, what has George H. Um, missed out on when it comes to representing the residents of your riding of uh, Vancouver Fairview? Well, I would say he's a dismal failure on every front, to be honest. His role as the environment minister, he, he can't possibly say he's been good at it. Uh, he's overseen uh, the, um, the contradiction of what they promised, which was allow, you know, allowing Site C to move forward, which it has, and thank goodness. Uh, and they've allowed the, uh, the the pipeline to be built, rebuilt, and, and that's also something they, they spoke up against. Uh, they have raised the carbon tax uh, to make it uh, not uh, neutral in its financial picture, which is something that Gordon Campbell really wanted to commit to when he created that carbon tax. How do we make it uh, financially neutral? Uh, and they've taken that away and now just embedded that tax and built it into, uh, into the general revenue, which was against the principles of the carbon tax. Um, and so those three counts on his role in the environment and, and, and their clean BC program is exactly what the Liberals set up. I just renamed it. This is typical NDP and, and my experience in City Hall in Vancouver with Vision Vancouver. They take documents, rename them, pretty them up, put some pretty pictures with it and they say they're their own. But they haven't done anything at, of any level for the environment. And I would say most people who, would, who supported the NDP and, and George Heyman because of his, their, their or his environmental stance should be very, very disappointed, very disappointed in his work because he has failed at that portfolio. Locally on the, on the doorsteps and when I'm calling people and, and uh, the general consensus that I'm getting is that they, he's been invisible. He hasn't been out there. He hasn't been in the community. Uh, there is a major issue about a school that's not necessarily in the riding but will impact the riding that he has not stepped up to the bat, up to the plate to, to, for, the, uh, for the riding. Uh, he's been invisible on that issue, which is a big issue in the riding. Uh, and so he hasn't really done much. He really has been a failure in my mind, and I think that's why I'm interested. I want to help. I, my office is in the riding. It's been there for 10 years, and I really understand the riding. 
uh, kids in the school system. I understand that, that frustration. So he just, to me, he's a, you know, obviously in my mind, I'm biased because I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> the guy against it. But I just, that, there's a list of things that I think you have to think about if you're, if you're, when you're on voting day or voting days, those are things you need to look at and say, did George Heyman do his job? Well, it's interesting uh, hearing your comments because it, reflect, it uh, reflects the comments I heard from David Eby about <clears throat> three years ago when I first sat down with him and had an interview with him. And I said, you know, David, look, wh wh what do you think was one of the reasons that you were able to beat Christy Clark, the premier of British Columbia, in her own riding? And his words were almost identical to what you just said, is that she was um, unavailable, absent from her riding. She didn't, she wasn't connecting with the people in her riding. She wasn't around. She wasn't being seen. And it sounds like that's what you're hearing from the people in Vancouver. It's um, the worst thing you could do. And I, I can't speak to Christy or that riding in Point Grey, but, uh, you know, um, that was before my time being involved yeah. with the PC Liberals. But your, your first role uh, in being elected is to represent the people. You, of your riding and, and also represent the people as a whole. Government, uh, in, in, its, in its basic principle, after the elections are over, you're meant to govern all people, all businesses, all the whole province. And mm -hmm. you need to put the, all the partisanship aside and think about your job. And that is to represent everyone. And, and I certainly was frustrated in city council when I saw the bias and the, and the, and the, you know, the tone deafness of Vision Vancouver who all those people who are in Vision Vancouver behind the scenes and in, like Jeff Meggs who are in council are now in control of this NDP government. And I see the same kind of tone deafness happening. There's some this management from the premier's office that is not listening to the people. They're, they're not, they're calling this election when people don't want this election. Uh, and I think it's frustrating. I, I see a path if they win a majority that we saw in Vancouver at a micro level where there was this uh, lack of caring about what people really, really want in the community. And as a result, in, in several years after a vision, they were decimated in the polls because they didn't listen. And, and it was something that I tried to fight for when I was in council. And it's something I think I will fight for for Fairview and, and, and say, look, this is my job is to fight for you at, in Victoria for the things you want in your community. That's my job. Right. Well, and George, I think you bring up a really good point for those listeners that aren't familiar. Um, you were elected twice to city council, city of Vancouver, under a majority vision council. So yeah. you were kind of like the underdog there. Uh, you make me think of like the old Andrew Weaver of early days where he was in there piping <laughs> up against, oh, he's very well-spoken, sure. you know, very, very uh, well-spoken individual. It sounds like you're just like yourself. So why did you decide to run in this election? I mean, you got to you know, admit that the given the current polls, the BC Liberals are way behind right now. Doesn't surprise me. I mean, otherwise, what do, I mean, the NDP were very strategic in this. I mean, uh, our premier or former, you know, uh, John Horgan stated that it's never a bad time to ask people um, when to sure. to choose who their elected representatives are. I would say, yeah, there is. How about like when there's a global pandemic? Um, but he did this clearly. We really won't admit it. He mm -hmm. did this because they look good in the polls and this might be a good time to pull the trigger. So why did you choose to make this your election to run for uh, BC politics? Well, I mean, I, I had been in conversations, uh, you know, after leaving office, I, I was, you know, ready to kind of do get back to my business and uh, immediately was approached for the federal election, which I declined uh, by both the Liberals and the Conservatives. So <laughs> I'm not a member of a federal party, so I guess that's why. Uh, and then um, I was approached by the Liberals in, in conversation some, some time ago, and, and obviously I thought the election would be next year, so I hadn't really put much thought into it, but they asked me to do some paperwork, and I kind of did that you know, a little while ago, but I hadn't actually made any kind of final decision uh, until late, basically, the, the writ was dropped, or just before the writ was dropped, 
and the amounts that are doing this. So I had to make a decision about whether to do it. And my frustration as a business owner uh, is significant and my concern for the province. Um, you know, I'm I, giving back and serving your community is important to me. It's something I've done all the time in, in my adult life. And even as a kid growing up, I was always on student council and all things like that. It, it, it was really um, the fact that all three parties were working together, not only, not just as because of it, they were had a minority government that kind of forces you to kind of work together. But they, during the pandemic, they have shown maturity, I think, as adults <laughs> to, to get through this together, which is important. I wish they could do that and government could do that more often. Um, and as a result, of course, the NDP benefited from the, the, the popularity of that because they're, they get all the face time. And so I think it's frustrating that they use the Green Party and they, and they use the uh, BC Liberals to their advantage now and have called an election when they, they set the election date next year. They set it. Right. Nobody else did. They said it. And so they've betrayed themselves. They've betrayed people of this province and they betrayed their partners in this pandemic, which is the BC Liberals and, and Green Party. And you can certainly see. And I'm very uh, impressed of how aggressive the Green Party has been about this. I would have thought they would have said, oh, well, let's just keep fighting. We'll get our three seats back. And, you know, that was really pretty sweet. But now they're being pretty aggressive about it because I think they're quite upset, as, as am I and as are the BC Liberals, that this election uh, was unnecessary. Um, and unfair, given that we were all working together on the most important crisis, most challenging crisis that we've had in a hundred years. Uh, and now they've made it 100% political. And that is something that all three parties had agreed that we, they wouldn't do. And mm -hmm. now it is. And it's it just makes people not believe in government. And I hate that. I really do hate that. I really think that government is important. Its roles and responsibilities and how democracy works are very important to me. And I feel very frustrated when I see this kind of behavior and, and, and it makes people angry and, and cynic, cynical. You've been in both public office at the city level. You're vying now to be a MLA for our province, but you've also, you're also a business owner. Mm -hmm. And you know what it's like to start up a business. You know what it's like to pay taxes. You know what it's like to um, not have any guarantees uh, like you get in a, you know, in a, in a nine to five union job mm -hmm. or being an MLA for that matter yeah. once you've got your four years locked in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what brings, how that brings a kind of a unique set of skill sets to the table that other candidates might not have, like the lifelong politicians that yeah. we're all too familiar with? Yeah, and I also worked as a journalist at CBC before I got into business. Uh, okay. And uh, before that, I sold uh, furniture and uh, and flipped burgers at Mr. Mike's and made pizza at Pizza Hut. Okay, so, so you've done it all. All these and rolled lawns uh, in Langley you know, when I grew up there. So, you know, it, it, um, you know I, I find it challenging when wannabe politicians talk about their business background being something that's really going to help them being in government. Because believe me, in being in government is so not the same as being in business. Pretty much everything you know about business is not how it works in government. As, as far as the process, the speed, decision making, it's completely different. And it's really challenging for any entrepreneur to go in thinking they can run government like they run a business. It's just not possible. It's not possible. Now, one of the benefits of any person in business, though, is they understand how to read financial statements. And that's really important. And there's a lot of politicians who have no clue how to read financial statements. And when you're talking about, in Vancouver's case, over a billion dollar budget and a multi-billion dollar budget provincially, it's kind of an important skill for all of the people elected to be able to understand how to read financial statements, how to read where the money comes from, where it's going, is this the right decisions making, what's the future, you know, all that stuff is really a really important part, uh, I think, for politicians. But very few have that skill set, to be honest. And, and I certainly saw that at council. And I look at the, the makeup of, of the government that we have now and our current the finance minister, Carol James, having no background in finance, 
uh, and being claimed as the best finance minister. How so? Uh, she's you know, layered on 23 new taxes or increased taxes significantly. Oh, easy job. Let's just tax people. That's so easy. I mean, that's not how you, you know, certainly not how you run a business. I, if I ran a business the way she ran a government, I'd be out of business in five minutes because, <laughs> you know, hey, hey, customers, I'm just going to raise your rates, you know, 50%, 60 tomorrow. Sorry, sending a bill. It doesn't, you know, that's that's well, the only thing I could compare about yeah. how tone deaf that is to what. The only you know, difference, though, is that, Consumers in a business have choice. Yeah, that's or, right. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't this buy. is this our this is our choice, I guess. Right that's now, right. what's happening on? That's right. Taxation is one of those things. It's it's a negative billing, right? It's it, you you have in, in the case of property tax, you just get your bill, and you can't you can't fight it. Uh, and in case of other taxes, it's tough to and and it's very seldom taxes get reversed. Once a tax is put in place, it's very very seldom you see that reversed, which mm -hmm. uh, probably leads you to your next question. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So on that. The BC Liberals are proposing that the uh, government cut PST to 0% for the first year. And then I believe is it to 3% in the second year? Yeah. Um, why have the BC Liberals decided that this is uh, something they want to hang their hat on as far as a, a strategy is concerned? It's, it's bold. And, you know, as I think people, anybody who knows me know how I feel about, uh, you, know, um, you know, revenue and how all the money works, and all those things in government. But... There's an this is an and deficit financing which I really really hate. Um, but it's sometimes and this is what my fight was when when I was in the city of Vancouver, is that basic philosophy of when times are good you should save when times are bad you got that's when you pull you pull the cash out and you start spending. In the case of Vancouver they didn't save when we had the chance to save and now we're in a predicament where the mayor is claiming Vancouver's bankrupt which is ridiculous because that's not how it works. But there's a guy who doesn't understand financials. Uh, but in the case of deficit financing, very challenging for me. But in this case, we have a pandemic, we have a major health crisis and a major economic crisis. We have the highest unemployment in years, decades, and small businesses struggling, not being able to survive, youth unemployment at record level. It's just crazy. So uh, the key, if you believe in a market economy and how it works, is you have to stimulate that market to get people to spend money so that it gets things going again. Well, the easiest tax, the most nimble tax that provincial government has is sales tax. It can be turned on and off quickly. Income tax and other taxes would take a year before they feel any kind of impact, of course, because you don't pay it until a year after it's the fact. So the only tax really that you can turn on and off and immediately inject uh, some kind something into the economy that's positive uh, is the is is. PST is a, is a sales tax, a consumer tax, because it's about consuming. If you spend more money, you pay more tax. If you spend less, I mean, less money for the government. So uh, it's one that I think will give you a chance to give the people of this province a chance to spend more money and, and help small businesses like restaurants and retailers who are really, really suffering. We can't lose those organizations, those companies, those small businesses. They are, they are, what, they are what drive our economy in this province. 80 plus percent of businesses in this province are small businesses and we need to keep them going let me uh speak to one of the claims that the bc ndp state about your guys proposal which is that this tax this is a tax break for the wealthy how do you respond to that well it makes no sense this is a tax break for everyone it it the the it's, it's kind of goes it's counterintuitive to me if for uh, a party, the, the NDP, which would be have basic socialistic principles, who don't who don't understand how tax works. Basically, I mean, if you the point of PST is if you have more money, you spend more money, you spend on on consumable goods, you pay more taxes. Therefore, it's a, if you're a socialist, generally that's a good thing. Your rich people are paying more taxes. Isn't that something they like? How are they speaking now? I don't understand. So, but if 
but also people who don't spend a lot of money don't have to pay that tax as well. So mm-hmm. how do we make take away a tax that helps everybody and gets people spending more money? That's sure. the key to this is how do we get everybody spending more money or having more money to spend at least and on the things that they need. If you can uh, not have to pay G- PST on, on diapers for your kids or and the, and the argument about luxury boats and this, all these things, I mean, there's there's going to be ways that we can stop that kind of behavior. And, and, they, and Andrew Wilkinson has said that it would not be uh, luxury cars and other luxury things. Sure. So there'll be some stuff that we'll put restrictions on. But generally, this is a tax that everybody pays. Yeah. And it's something that we need to, uh, it's a, it's one that we can do that, I, as I mentioned, that's nimble, that we can immediately inject some, infuse the economy with this, uh, more spending, and which is important sure. to the economy going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do find it perplexing as well, to be honest with you, George, because you're right, maybe there's some rich people out there that uh, maybe not buying in a luxury car, but they're buying some nice, you know, a nice purse from the Louis Vuitton store and they're going to pay less in tax. And so they're getting a break. But I mean, it's well known that the people who get benefit the most from a um, from a consumption tax break are the people at the lowest end of the economic spectrum. Because if you're earning a million dollars a year and you're buying these Louis Vuitton purses every six months, you have so much money, you're making so much. It doesn't really matter whether you pay the tax or not. It's relative to your income, it's irrelevant. But if you're a single mom and you have a fixed income and yeah, okay, there's certain costs that are exempt like uh, groceries or Mm -hmm. children's clothing, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that aren't. Yeah, you know, surprisingly, and, sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and so if you're going out and having to spend your money, materials, for example, hundred so percent. Want to do those renovations to turn your house into a home office because yeah. that's what's happening. You know, it's one of the things that you know that taxation is obviously something I'm quite you know passionate about as far as you know how it works and all the problem that we're adding taxes, adding taxes. I think this is also an opportunity for when the BC Liberals get in, and I certainly want to be a part of this. Is to, to I think there's time for tax. This is a time for tax reform. When you when it's surprising that the you know if the if the liberals had if we had said to tax you know corporate tax rates then I could see the argument where NDP is saying this is a tax that we're relieving but we're not we're talking about a tax that everybody pays yeah um, but I think it's also an opportunity once selected for the BC Liberals to look at all tax reform with the economy now completely transforming as we know it with the people working from home with all these different ways of of how the economy will work and how we live. Um, I, I think it's time for some kind of analysis of how taxes are paid in general and how we can improve that uh, just on, you know, on the whole structure with it and just on technology alone and how we can improve that. It just seems like we're living in a world from a taxation point of view that is 100 years old. And mm-hmm. it, it's time to take a look at our taxation structure, how we pay our taxes, the process, everything and improve it and, and get it to be, make it more efficient and therefore uh, the government can have more money to, to pay for all the things that we need, all the services that are required and we will continue to require as we move forward. Right. So George, on that note, are there any um, unique or creative tax ideas that you've heard of that you think would be uh, worthy of, of a consideration for our province today that is either a twist on existing taxes or a new concept that you ha- we have don't have in our province today? Well, the relationship between cities and the provincial government, I think, needs to be fixed. Uh, given my experience at City Hall, the, the lack of flexibility that cities are given to tax, uh, especially when we look at um, property tax and, and certainly for businesses and small businesses, where we have this thing what's called lift, where basically if a piece of property is assessed at uh, you know a billion dollars or ten million dollars, 
your tax on that $10 million. If you're, even if the building there is only two, two units or whatever, um, they're taxed on the future of that, potential future of that site, uh, the value of that site as opposed to what's happening there now. And cities aren't allowed to do anything. There's no split assessment, it's called. They're not allowed to do that. The province has been dragging its heels on this. The NDP have not done anything. Even though Jeff Meggs, who was a city councillor, put a motion forward at City Hall about this very issue, he now sits in the mayor, the premier's office, and has done nothing on this on this file uh, through his network at uh, the NDP. And I think it's frustrating. The NDP have not shown any support for small business, uh, you know. So why do you think that is specifically in this pandemic? Why do you think that is, George? Does that go back to your earlier comment, which is you can't run business the way you can run? I mean, you can't run government the way you can run business, or like what Jeff Meggs, like why why hasn't he made, got something going here? Well, I don't understand. I think there's this uh, certain arrogance in general in, 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 with the NDP, and I think that once you're in power, sometimes you they, they, they forget what, how they got there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, there is a lack of respect for business and the small business community from the NDP, absolutely. During this pandemic, the only thing they really offered was this rental thing that no you know, own building owner that I know for any business owner was willing to find a way to do this because they said, oh, well, you should got to show me all your financials and all these, you know, hoops. You have I don't know anybody through. that got Nobody. access to it. Not exactly. One. So that money's just sitting there waiting to be used, by the yeah. way. Uh, so th that's the only thing they did for, for small business and business in general. That's pathetic. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the most important thing. If you understand the economy, which clearly the NDP don't because they didn't do anything in their in the last nine months uh, about this, um, then you understand that small business and business in general is in, in small to medium-sized businesses drive our economy. Mm -hmm. And without supporting them in whatever way you can as a government, then you're failing them and you're and you're potentially uh, going to hurt not only the economy, but our, our society. Without revenue in the government coffers, without cash coming in for the for the province, then you can't actually provide the services that you call you you talk about. So you can talk about all these great things, but if there's no money rolling in, uh, and if there's no way to understand how it all works uh, and how and, and how you can create programs that create, generate the economy and make the economy stimulated, then you're you're going to fail and yeah. they are failing. Yeah. Since the NDP have been in power, there's been a big increase in the taxation on what they call luxury vehicles. So vehicles that sell mm -hmm. for basically over $100,000. Yeah. Whole idea there being, as the NDP often like to say, let's we want the wealthy, the one percent, the one percent of the one percent, to pay their fair share, to pay more. So I'm at the Porsche dealership and I'm talking to the manager. And in 2019 and in 2020, the total amount of tax that they've submitted to the provincial government in total has gone down. Why? Because the number of unit sales has gone yeah. down. So talking about the basics of economics. Yeah. Um, it's great to tax those wealthy people more, but if you tax them too much to the point that they just say, oh, I'm not going to bother. I just won't buy the car. I'll just wait. I don't need it. Yeah. Just, well, I'll wait. Or they'll find other ways, you know, that are, you know, you, there's different ways around these things. I mean, taxation yeah. uh, generally, and, and certainly we learned about Donald Trump and how his taxes, is, you know, work there. It's there. If, if you make it, it simple, taxation methods are much more efficient and much more lucrative for government than complicated tax structures and multiple tax systems, which is what we have now in this province. We have multiple city taxes now, as far as when it comes to empty homes and this home, and, and, so we have to, and then we have the school tax, and we have this tax, and we have that tax, 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 tax. And you don't even know what you're paying anymore or what you're getting. And that's what I find frustrating. I'm a big fan of 
taxation and, and direct relationship to what you get. The correlation. The correlation should mm. be clear. I mean, obviously you need general revenue, but if you're going to create a new tax, which is what the carbon tax was, there was a direct relationship between the carbon tax, which is one of the world's most respected taxes that was ever brought in, you know, related to the environment, the most successful one. You know, people will argue against that, but it did work. Just to be clear, this was a tax that was brought in by the BC Liberal Party under Gordon Campbell. Yeah, that's right. And the transition was several years, uh, over several years, and it was uh, revenue neutral. So it was meant to not impact, you know, uh, the co you know, consumers or anything like that. It was really an incentive program to do what was good for the environment, to lower GHGs, all that kind of stuff, which is important. Lowering our greenhouse gas emissions is priority number one. That's what we need to figure out. How do we make people, you know, not pollute more well they gotta, it's instead of taxing them and hammering them find ways to incent them but also find money to pay for things and, and reward good behavior not punish it right taxation to me is like this punishment it's like how do we find a balance between rewarding people and then if you, they do something wrong, then you punish them. I mean, it's it's basic principles. It's kind of in some ways I treat my kids like when they're growing up. You know, you you have the model when you're raising your kids about you know reward them and, and punish them when they you know they, to make them understand the good and bad and what works and what doesn't work. It's it seems like that there's an, uh, this misunderstanding and, and this tax model of just hammer it. You know, just just make it more. And uh, do you think that the BC NDP, if elected with a with a majority for the next four years, will be raising taxes? It's the only thing they know how to do. They don't understand the the, the nimbleness of what can you can do with the economy and how you can work with business to make it work. They only understand taxation. I, I, I don't see any hope that we won't see more taxes. Punishing people who make more money uh, is definitely in there is what they think is effective. Um, but what happens, as we know, is people who get taxed too much just leave, uh, or they stop spending, as you as you mentioned, or 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 worse, they start evading, and and that's even worse. I mean, mm -hmm. you want to create a transparent tax system that's simple and easy to use, and the money coming in is predictable, and that you can, uh, and that goes to the right things that the government should be doing, prioritizing the things that are most needed in our in our uh, in our province at this at any moment in time, and right now, obviously. Healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, and then next is building back the economy, and of course the housing file is still an issue, and homelessness. We well, we're going to jump on. Day. We're going to jump on that in a second. I want to ask you one more question. Sure. So, I had uh, Andrew Wilkinson in here just uh, probably about a month and a half ago before the writ was dropped, and um, and we had Sam here, Sam Sullivan, uh, on on Friday, and one of the the observations that I've made um, with respect to taxation is the. Um, the disconnect and the and the lack of transparency, um, lack of transparency. You mentioned earlier about the need for people to read a financial statement, and I agree. I think that's like key item in being able to govern, being able mm -hmm. to make decisions, to make good policies. You got to be able to understand where the money, the world, the, the money, the money makes the world go round, like mm -hmm. the old saying goes. But you also have to have some transparency about where, what that looks like in the first place. Now. Yeah. Uh, I work in the financial markets, and, and the public companies uh, have to pu publish their financials every quarter. And I Andrew, asked Andrew Wilkins to this. I said, what are your thoughts on the fact that the government only publishes its financials once a year? And I, my question to you is, and he, he seemed to agree with me that we should have more transparency there. My question to you is this. Do you think that there's um, a convenience factor here for the BCNDP? They, the provincial government publishes its financials at the end of March of each year. So the only up-to-date financial information we have from the government of British Columbia is from March 31st of 2020, right when the mm -hmm. pandemic started. 
way before all the spending happened. Yeah. Whereas, it, it, so if we had an election this time next year, all that spending activity would be well documented and be on our financial statements. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that was a decision, a, a factor in the decision making calling this election? Oh, I think absolutely. The the dreaded next budget is is uh, nobody wants to be <laughs> any, any any government right now, uh, whether you be municipal, federal, or provincial, doing budgets right now is, is a nightmare, especially if you're a fiscal conservative, uh, because you're making decisions that are totally counterintuitive and like your brain's exploding because you're going, I got to do what? Uh, but you got to do it. Um, and if you're a government like 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 BC is, which is, you know, you can thank the BC Liberals. It's painful. And I know that people are angry at the BC Liberals. I hear it uh, for previous administrations over how what are they my, angry over the, the how they were tight with the cash mm -hmm. and that we didn't spend all the money that we made and all that stuff. And we but you know what we did? We set it up so that we ha can now do deficit financing because we didn't spend like drunken sailors when the times were good. We we didn't, there are some things that could have been done better for sure, um, but it's important. And I'm a big believer in this is when times are good, you save, you don't spend crazy. You try to keep being, keep government simple, keep it, you know, narrow uh, as far as how you spend your money. Uh, and then when times get bad and they always do, and it's never been this bad, this is pretty bad. This is like mm -hmm. really bad, but always we know the cycle of the economy. It's predictable. I mean, we've actually are in the longest cycle of, of positive, uh, uh, you know, the positive economy that's in the history of the last, you know, 100 years. Mm -hmm. But it, that's un, unusual. And then the pandemic, and you could sense pre-pandemic that things were slowing down. I know you know, you probably know that. Yeah. I, I sensed it for sure as a business person. Uh, the pandemic just sped up that process. So there is that, uh, th th that, that net, those next budgets are going to be scary and nobody wants to deliver those. And I would say that that's one of the main reasons that they're like, oh, we don't want to deliver that, you know, multi-billion dollar deficit budget and multi-year yeah. deficit budget and and see our credit rating crash and see taxes going up and and you know they they rely on you know people supporting them in different ways as well financially they get donors but i i do want to address something else you said which was yeah. um transparency and, and financial statements and i think it goes you actually mentioned it about uh, quarterly financials and and the annual financials but as a business owner you know generally you have access if you own a business you have access to your financials anytime you want 100 you know you i go, expect you, my accountants to be able to answer a question with they got five minutes. It's your money. If yeah. you own a business, I want to know where my money is. We are the shareholders, all of us people of this province, and we it's our money, all of it, all of us people and businesses in this province. And so I'm a big believer and fought for this hard and didn't succeed at City Hall for full transparency on financing and budgeting, uh, that full access to those financial statements for the public at any given time should be impossible. The technology's there. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to go look at in Absolutely. real time of the financials of this province to see how they're doing, to see how they are managing my money. You don't have to have every single like pencil that's been purchased or whatever, but the basic you know, you know, know, balance sheet and, and, and statements and things like that, why can't those be available all, anytime in real time? Uh, for people, given that it's, it's totally possible. And I think mm -hmm. that transparency of government and transparency of financials is, is, is important to me for sure. Well, look at the recent purchase of the Herman Miller chairs by the city of Vancouver. And yeah. I think the only reason that was caught wasn't because someone was able to pick it up on a transparent uh, expense report, because it wasn't, is literally someone's got a video of it. That's right, an accidental uh, happenstance of a, of a journalist being on site. But that that what that also proved to me, and, and this goes to this, the 
the, the lack of understanding too, though, of capital budgets versus operating budgets and how those two work together. Uh, it's really important that people, and I didn't, I think it's a terrible purchase. Optics, terrible, terrible. You could argue those are the greatest chairs, they're the best chairs for staffs, you know, spines and this and that. And that, and that might be valid. And 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 they would, you'd have to understand that those chairs are amortized over 10 years and therefore save us money. There's a whole bunch of ways you could probably prove that that was probably a wise purchase, but optically terrible, terrible because, and also the lack of understanding because they're basically saying, oh, well, it's capital expense. It doesn't matter. It doesn't come out of the operating. But yeah, but guys. It's like it's a dollar's a dollar. A and business owner would yeah. look at it very differently. Exactly. And you, by yeah. the way, you have a hundred million dollar deficit in your fi capital budget, <laughs> right. so you're you're already paying interest in the millions every year. Don't collect more debt. Yeah. I don't know. Not when stop buying stuff. Double digit unemployment rates. Maybe yeah. maybe don't take the tax dollars that we all work hard to pay. Exactly. To if you want to see, if you want to blow some of your capital budget, go fix some uh, sidewalks and some uh, and sure. some uh, <laughs> railings on bridges and things, please. Well, let's take this um, conversation as we go to wrap this up. Let's take it back to the social issues that are at hand in your riding. Um, in particular, um, one of the claims that you've made is that uh, Mount Pleasant, which is in your riding, yep. uh, needs a new school. And there's been, uh, you, I think in your recent tweet, you said that there's land has been already set aside. Maybe you're mm -hmm. referring to the Olympic Village land. Yep. Um, so maybe can you first speak to, um, you know, what what is the... Um, what do we have for schools in Vancouver Fairview? Like, what, what's this, what's the what's it look like for people who don't have kids but are you know have kids that are parents with kids in, in your in your riding? Well, it's it's you know it's interesting to see one of the frustrating things about school system. And as a parent who uh, with kids and my 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 kids grew up in Yale Town, right downtown, um, so across the water from Fairview. Um, and in Yale Town, there was no school until well until my second kid was in grade five I think there was a school that was meant to be built it didn't get built didn't get built and so they had to, the two older kids had to go to school across the water at Falls Creek Elementary um, very frustrating uh, then the youngest now he's at Elsie uh, Roy which is in Yale Town which is great it's a, you know you can walk to school you can walk home these are things that are idyllic but also you know we don't have school buses in Vancouver so you kind of we created a city that it's supposed to be walkable our, our actual the city's transportation structure is you know putting walking first as a way to get around and so it's frustrating because the I think the province needs to start looking at how the education system not only how you educate kids because that's all changing now because of, of the COVID stuff and we're learning different ways of teaching but structures there is so many weird rules and regulations about how you can use structure, where they can be, what can be they can be used for, what happens when they, when there's a generational change in a neighborhood. I remember I grew up when I was in we grew up first in Lynn Valley and then we moved to Langley and then Vancouver. In Lynn Valley, the street I lived on when I was a kid was packed. There was kids everywhere, everywhere. Like just you know, there was we were all everybody was kids. It was just and then we kind of grew up and then suddenly it was all seniors. The neighborhood and the school. Uh, Lynn Valley Elementary had no students and when I was there there was five portables and and so then suddenly the school they turned it into a museum <laughs> like, which is a bit depressing uh shows you how old I am uh so, you know but then guess what happened those sen seniors then moved and those houses were sold to families and now there's families there again and there's all these kids on the same street that I grew up in there were kids at now the kids are back now guess what there's no school for them to go to because they <laughs> closed the school and you're like oh my god like this is crazy so there's no and we could predict how neighborhoods will evolve we can see how they evolve so we knew that Olympic Village was going to have 
a lot of kids going, there's going to be a demand there, just like there was in Yaletown. We knew it was coming, yet nothing was done. There was no decision made. And, there, and there's a point, finger pointing about the NDP versus liberals. It, this is actually part, in part the school board of Vancouver's fault for not prioritizing the, the school in Olympic Village to the province. It's the board's decision to tell the province what they need. It wasn't until 2018 that they said to the province, priority number one is Olympic Village School. The NDP have clearly stated that they do not support building a school there. Uh, Sam Sullivan is the riding. He's fighting for it. I don't understand this. Doesn't make any sense. I I know lots of people who live in that riding who have to drive their kids. Talk to the the Sam on Friday, but to drive their kids. It's this lack of nimbleness of the school system. Vancouver. Why is it not important? Because we have a declining population in kids in Vancouver in general. So there are other schools in the city that are that are half empty or whatever. And the school board only gets a certain number of dollars per student. And so they look at this math and they go, well, you have, you have empty schools, send the kids to those schools. But you're like, well, that school's literally in Southeast Vancouver or something. Like, sure. I can't sit a kid from Olympic, what, what bus is he gonna take? You know, where, how are you gonna drive a car himself? <laughs> crazy. What, what's he gonna do? So there is this lack of understanding of how do we build a schools that are nimble to the population changes? I think that's the bigger question. But in the meantime, we definitely need a school down there because the population is growing by tens, 20, 30,000 people over the next five, 10 years. There has to be a school there because what's happening is in my riding, uh, those students are all pushing up the hill and going into, into the Vancouver Fairview riding and putting pressure on the schools that are already full in Vancouver Fairview. And they're going, hey, hey, hey our schools are full. Uh, and so some of those kids now have to walk, you know, if they wanted to walk, it's a 45 minute walk to the, to the nearest school for them. And that's, that's just not right. So there needs to be a revamp of how our schools are built. Do you think the BCNDP will, will build this if they get a four year mandate? They've clearly stated that it's not on their priority list. And they have stated, uh, the now former minister uh, has said, uh, he, you know, that it was not a priority and that the school, he, say, he stated that the school district has a declining population and therefore, uh, does basically doesn't deserve a school and there are other areas that have an increasing population which is true but that doesn't make it you know right that the neighborhood there shouldn't be ways to build schools that could be that could be more nimble sure you know with developers with communities you can you should be able to build schools that then can be become senior centers and then back and forth or whatever yeah it's just not possible you're not allowed to do it there's so many restrictions that you just can't do it yeah wow you recently pointed out that the strathcona park has 400 plus tents um, and just for those listeners to understand, where is Strathcona Park? Just give a visual where where Strathcona Park. It's is. sort of east of Main Street. So if you're if you're not in the city, you you know you sort of have to go you know past the viaducts and keep heading. You know when you're heading on the viaducts out of the city and you keep uh, heading east, you, you'll hit that park mm-hmm. on Venables. There you'll sort of see Venables, on the right hand yeah. side there. In 2017, Metro Vancouver had a homeless count that was over a thousand people. Street homeless. Yeah. Street hom- homeless. Mm-hmm. How would you, as a MLA, tackle this complex problem well there's that's the the, the, that number that's what i first pointed out was that we have to really keep things in perspective that there's a difference between uh, you know homeless and street homeless there is a a lot of people who identify as homeless who actually are housed they just identify as homeless for whatever reason but the street homeless are people who have no home they have no place to live for whatever that might that might be that could be a decision of theirs it could be because of circumstances whatever that might be so the number that was identified by the metro region was about 1300 people in 2017 uh so are street homeless street homeless people who literally zero homes they have no home they have no connection to any home so 
To me, that's the real number we need to start focusing on. There are other numbers. And would are, you consider these 400 plus tents in well, Strathcona? If, if is that fact, considered street homeless? It, it can't be because if you can't, you can't tell me that 400 of those 1,300 people are living in Strathcona. It's just not possible. We know that there are criminal activity going on down there. We know there are tents with weapons in them. We, this is the exact same people that were. Yeah, Howard Chow Bar tweets about this almost every day. They're, they're constantly down yeah, there picking up There is up crazy. other stuff going on down there yeah. and it's not cool. And it's not what, it's not the solution to homelessness. Building a campsite is not the solution to homelessness. There are many re solutions to homelessness. You know, we have the drug addiction, we have mental health crisis, we have the housing in general, the affordability crisis, we have cr the criminal element, we have all these different areas that we need to deal with. You, The first report I got when I was in city council about homelessness identified at that time that approximately 60% of the people who were homeless went through the foster care system. And so my immediate reaction was, well, I think I might have found a problem here. <laughs> we we <laughs> sure. might want to start looking at the foster care system and what's going on there. Uh, and nothing really has been done to it's a amazing. big way. And then you look at just on the welfare rates and the, all these different things that need to be identified as what is going on, how we are spending our money. What's interesting about this COVID crisis right now is it shows you how I, when you talk about, you asked a question earlier about running a business and, yeah. and uh, how, and I said how government is not like a business, but I would tell you that never have I, my, did I think I'd ever see decisions being made federally, provincially, certainly federally, so quick, policies being created, money being made available, things happening so quickly at a government level. I know people who, who, nonprofits who apply for grants and they usually have to wait they write the grant they fill their forms it takes about six months then you get you write a list you got to write your report afterwards they are seeing the same the same money being given to them in two weeks they write the same they fill the form they send it in they get their money in two weeks they've never seen this before they they're just they're it's clearly for whatever reason the government is moving slower than it should in general what covid crisis has proven that they can move faster and so I think that there's an opportunity for us to identify. That's why it's kind of frustrating that we're in this election because I'm thinking we were just learning a lot of ways about how to govern differently together. Mm -hmm. And now we're all fighting each other again, which is exactly what we should not be doing right now. Yeah. Um, and it's a really good point. Well, homelessness they, they, is they one of those things. Fight to the, like they brought the fight, they dropped the gloves first. Absolutely. And homelessness is one of those things like COVID-19 that you have to come together and come up with a plan together. Sure. And it can't be something that's going to happen over the next four years. We're talking about a generational decision. We're talking about something that you're not going to see a solution for homelessness, like Gregor Robertson said, by 2015. Impossible. We need a plan for the next 20, 30, 40 years. We do it for transportation. We do it for you know uh, construction in our cities about how we build things. Why are we not putting a homeless strategy together for the next 20 or 30 years? Why don't we, what are we saying? Like 2040 homeless strategy. I know it sounds scary. It's 2040. We're going to solve homelessness and by 2040 well we got to start get a plan we got to put a plan together and put what are the elements of that plan that will get us to in the right direction whether it's foster care whether it's, it's social housing whether it's health mental health care whether it's drug addiction okay so what's the plan for each of those to get to the to the main point of getting people off the streets and in healthy and to be healthy and, and happy uh, but so, no so government George. wants to do that generally. It's because they, <laughs> they look at their elections and go, ah, I need the next four years right now, which is what John Horgan's doing. He's just looking at his next four years going, I just want to be in power and power is all that matters to him. And that's not cool to me. So George, before we jump to our last item here, um, which is the environment, uh, you always, you're obviously very passionate about the homelessness thing. And, and you've obviously had to address this as a two-time city councilor, city of Vancouver. What are a couple things, specific things, that you think the BC NDP 
have missed out on when it comes to addressing the homeless issues over the last three years that as future potential future MLA for Vancouver Fairview, uh, you would address? Well, I mean, there's been some areas where they've worked a little bit on the on the healthcare side that, uh, and you know, I think the pandemic has certainly uh, had its impact on on healthcare. But you know, the mental health care definitely needs addressing. But I think when it comes to housing, it's the main file that they failed at for sure. They, you know, the module housing in Vancouver is 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 something actually that was introduced in 2011 in an election I was a part of as a solution, a short term solution. It's not a long term solution. Um, but I haven't seen any kind of, and this goes for the federal government too, any kind of long-term strategy for housing. And I think that social housing, if you look back at what systems worked, uh, where we constructed true social housing, where it's you know 30% of your income basically, um, for people who need it most, uh, it's been the private sector that's driven that through generally tax incentives. And so the federal and provincial government need to look at how do we partner with the private sector? Because... When you, there's an example, okay, again, when business and government, there's, there's, they are so different. But if you can empower the business people to get stuff done uh, in different ways, whether it's through tax incentive programs, they will do it. I think a lot of people take great pride in businesses. And if you look back historically at businesses who, do, who did do this, they will build things partly for ego, partly because they think it's good. Uh, and if there's a tax incentive, even better. First and foremost, give them a tax incentive and then let them have their ego stuff. So right. if you want to have the Joe Smith or Mary Jones building for homeless people in the downtown east side, well, that person's not going to just build that in generally out of the goodness of their own heart. They have to find partners or they have to, you know, and the private sector can offer that to any government uh, and do it quickly. But you have to come up with those programs. But it relies on the federal government to be a part of that program. Homelessness is not a, is not a city issue. It's a pr- national issue, and and a provincial healthcare issue for the most part. It's it's a national housing issue. It's a provincial healthcare issue and a city administration issue. Those three things need to work together to deal with housing and homelessness. And uh, and I think the NDP have not uh, sufficiently dealt with long term solutions that I've seen in their short uh, three years that they had a chance at it and now their chance is over so we can get back to normality uh, after October 24th when the BC Liberals win. <laughs> well, that's good. I love the optimism, George. Now, let's 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 uh, wrap this up around the topic of the environment. Speaking of which, of course, George Heyman, who mm-hmm. I invited to come here, um, you responded right away. We haven't heard from him at all. We've tried multiple times. Just so like little, the people of Vancouver Fair. <laughs> I feel like I can feel, feel, I can feel their pain. I can feel their pain. <laughs> now, he was, up until the writ had dropped, the uh, Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Mm-hmm. Um, you had also recently published, and I don't know how we maybe tie this in, but there's a lady by the name of Nikki Sharma, who um, has been part of an organization against LNG Canada and the LNG expansion, but she's now running under the BC NDP. Um, I had David Eby here. I asked him about the TMX pipeline, which he's against, but he's in favor of the LNG project. So he made it made a good point of saying that he, you know he feels like not all pipelines are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but your your competition, George Hyman, um, Heyman, sorry, George Heyman, mm-hmm. um, he he was the uh, minister of the environment, and uh, I'd like you to comment on how you think he's done. You mentioned it earlier. But can you get specific as to where he's failed as the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change? Well, if I was an environmentalist like the ones that supported him uh, and 
I would be very disappointed in his role as a as the minister of environment. They they did everything they didn't they said they would do they didn't do so they didn't you know the the whether it be site C or the LNG all these things they said they were going to stop or whatever. Seems like a lack of conviction. Yeah, well you know promises promises. Uh, you know I think they are the NDP are always have this struggle where they are um, trying to balance their their union interests you know people who are paid you know in union wages who work on a lot of those places and the environmentalists which are a big part of their their you know their followers uh, the green party is capturing more and more of those environmental uh, you know supporters and I think that this election will I think you know surprisingly I think you'll see a lot of them may shift over to to the green party even further than we thought might because I think uh, you know, far, uh, Sonia Farstenow is doing yeah. a good job at resonating in a lot of ways that way to that to that, especially those those, those people that are interested in that. Um, that's not to say the BC Liberals are against the environment, though. I mean, I think we we did the one thing, and the NDP fought it, which was the you know the carbon tax. No, the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, carbon tax. And, and which, of course, well, they also fought benefit. the BC Liberals on They've, the LNG yes, until they and were in Sight power. C, and, and 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 I mean, you look around. The that's city, the part that like, I find confusing as a voter. Like you hear the BC NDP before they got elected in this latest uh, parliament, uh, that they were starkly against the LNG Canada. And that Christy Clark was wasting her time and spending yeah. taxpayers' dollars trying to court these large companies to come over to BC and and build out a huge infrastructure project, and then they become in power, and all of a sudden it's go, it's green light. A lot of union jobs, a lot of union jobs are up there for building out that stuff, and I think they get that pressure. And so, uh, to me, they are compromised by by their their interest groups in in, in decision making for them. Uh, so I think that it's it's you know I think the environment is is crucial and we need to find ways to uh, get people to be you know to to lower the GHGs in our province uh, and across the country and around the world and uh, you know I think it's not about uh, disapproving of projects it's finding ways to get people to consume less and 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 be and have less of a footprint my myself I live in you know thousand square feet with three kids I, I my, my 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 footprint's pretty small as far as the environment goes but on a day-to-day level but and I think those are the kind of decisions how do we how do we consume uh, things and how do we affect the environment every day uh, I think it's we can make a big impact individually if we start thinking about it that way mm-hmm. um, and uh, stop fighting over things that are uh, you know misguided or political and, instead of just saying how do we how do we solve this environmental problem this crisis nightmare that we potentially are in uh, and, and the global uh, uh, climate crisis when uh, if we can't even get along and again it goes back to this opportunity that the NDP has thrown out in this by calling this election they were working working together closely on on the uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis there was an opportunity to look at the homeless thing together and they could have also looked at the environment thing together and seen a solution that could have worked for everybody and instead they've thrown it all away uh, by calling it an early election uh, for completely arrogant and self-serving purposes, and, and uh, I think uh, I think voters won't will see through it. Mm-hmm. What can people do if they want to help get involved? Uh, wh- wh- where do you need uh, assistance? Do you need assistance? Yeah, sure. Please come on down. GeorgeAffleck.com uh, is my website, and just contact me. And, and if you want to volunteer, absolutely. I think the key right now. This is a very you know these 19 days today as uh, as we're recording uh-huh. this to the election. But the election actually is every day. So that's one of the things you earlier you asked about this campaign. But this campaign, one of the things that's weird is because of COVID-19, we're voting every day. 
the election day is on the 24th, but really they're expecting 500,000 ballots being mailed in. And the last election, I think it was 6,000. So that's a big difference. Uh, and also we're not going to find out who the winner is for two weeks after the election, which is a bit anticlimactic and weird. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'll be sitting there going, what's going to happen? Uh, the so I think it's important for everybody to just get out and vote. Get out, get sure. get your ballot in now, mail it in, go to the your elections office wherever you are. And, and democracy relies on voting, uh, and get those ballots in the current ballots until next week. They won't have anybody's name on them; it's a blank, and so you got to write the name of the person, first and last, in your writing that you want, or the political party. What if someone writes just George? Yeah, well, that's a problem. Yeah, they better not. It's George Affleck, you guys. <laughs> Affleck, hey, like Ben Affleck. It's yeah. easy to remember. Uh, so yeah, no, it's it's important that people get their ballots in, and and uh, because election day with COVID is a whole different game this time. So that just changes how we actually campaign. It's really uh, there's a thing called you know get out the vote, GOTV, and uh, usually it's on election day or on you know that's when you're all out there trying to get people to vote. And this time it's every day we're trying yeah. to get people to vote. Yeah. Well, look, I, I really appreciate you coming on today, George. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we uh, we wanted to have both yourself and George Heyman on at the same time to have a kind of, uh, not a debate, but a dialogue. And I'm disappointed that he didn't uh, didn't respond. So um, best of luck to you. Uh, you. I love the energy and I love the pa the compassion, passion and compassion for this. Sometimes I speak a bit fast. I apologize. <laughs> no, this is this has been really good. So, uh, so again, you mentioned your your website is uh, georgeaffleck.com. You're also uh, got a huge following on Twitter, um, and um, and best of luck to you on this campaign. I look forward to hopefully seeing you maybe as MLA for Vancouver Fairview uh, after October. 26, I guess we'll be waiting. I, I, I look forward to embarrassing my kids in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> All right. George Affleck for a BC Liberal candidate for uh, Vancouver Fairview. Thanks for being on the show Thanks, today. Andrew.